You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Well, uh, so it's a privilege to be here with you and share from God's Word. Psalm 2 is what we're looking at as we, as we dive in. Let me begin this way. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love to get up early and those who hate them. I mean, have you ever noticed that the people who love to get up early, they always have to brag about it? Have you ever noticed that? Like, yeah, I get up at 4 a.m. Uh, Kevin and I have to get up at 4 a.m. tomorrow for him to drive me to the airport. I'm already lamenting that. I think I will show up in sackcloth and ashes so you know where I, where I am on that in that category, there's two types of people in the world. There are those who hit snooze and those who don't. I don't hit snooze. Uh, I, I want to sleep until the last minute and then get up. I don't want to have interrupted sleep for 15-minute increments, right, or 10-minute increments. And so uh, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who fill up their car with gas as soon as the fuel gauge is somewhere between a quarter and a half a tank, somewhere in there. And then there are those who see the gaslight as a challenge. <laughs> They're like, I bet I can get a few more miles out of this tank before I go and get gas. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who squeeze the tube of toothpaste from the bottom and those who grab it in the middle. And it was in my first week of marriage that I recognized this is where our first conflict is going to come from. What, who grabs the tube in the middle? You squeeze from the bottom, of course, right? There are two types of people in the world, those who like crunchy Cheetos and those who like puffs. Puffs are better, by the way. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who use bookmarks and those who egregiously dog-ear the pages in the book, right? There are two types of people in the world, those who view the speed limit as the ceiling, the maximum speed you can go, and those who view it as the, as the floor, that's the minimum you can go, right? Now, of course, these are all broad generalizations. These are all lighthearted fun, right, as we think through these, and, and maybe some of you, as, as you hear that, you look at someone you're with, you're like, yeah, you're that person, or I'm this person, and some of you are protesting what I'm saying, and some of you are like, I'm somewhere on the spectrum of all of those things, right? Yet, Scripture actually tells us that there really are two kinds of people. Scripture really does put us as two groups of people. And the passage before us today shows us that we are either those who live under the Lord's kingship, or we live as those who are fighting for our own kingship. We are either those who live under God's kingship, or we are those who are trying to assert our own authority and our own kingship. And so as we dive into Psalm 2, what I want you to keep in mind, and the question that we'll ask ourselves over and over is, whose kingship are we living for? Whose kingship are we to live for? And what is our hope? What is our hope? We'll answer those questions as we go through this passage together. And so as we think about Psalm 2, it's important, I believe back at the beginning of the summer, you guys looked at Psalm 1 together. 
And so you're spending the summer through selected psalms. And it's really important to think of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as the entryway to the house of the psalms. And Kevin might have said that in Psalm 1 or something like that. And so, so it's almost like two columns on each side of the door, right? And so you see a pattern here. Uh, look at Psalm 1-1 real fast, and I, won't, I will compare back to, to Psalm 1 reference back a couple times because there's a lot of parallels. But let me start this way to make my point. Psalm 1-1 begins this way, blessed is the man. All right, look at Psalm 2, the very last line. How does it end? Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So you can kind of see bookends of these two psalms. You can also see that, that the psalms don't have a, a superscription. They're not assigned to David. I think they, because they are standing there to serve as this introduction to the psalms. And they really introduce two mega themes to the psalms that run all the way through. Right? The Lord's word, that's Psalm 1. And then the Lord's anointed, that's Psalm 2. And so you can see all throughout the Psalms, you'll see the emphasis on God's word. Psalm 19 that you guys have looked at. Psalm 119, the longest psalm. Uh, And then in Psalm 2, you see the Lord's anointed, and that points to Messianic Psalms. Psalm 8, Psalm 16 that I think you guys looked at. Psalm 110 that I'll mention in in a few moments uh, later. And so we see these two themes, and so that's blessed. And you can understand that word blessed is is full, fruitful, uh, flourishing is the life of those who who find themselves uh, in alignment with God's word here, right? And so that's important for us to recognize as we think through. And so I'll I'll make a couple of references back to Psalm 1 as we walk through Psalm 2. Let me give you the outline of of what we're going to look at. I'll go through, I'll outline this passage in four four sections. Verses 1 through 3 is the plot of the nations. Verses 1 through 3 is the plot of the nations. Verses 4 through 6 is the Lord's response. It's the Lord's response. Verses 7 through 9 is the Lord's anointed. And then verses 10 through 12 is our response. Our response to the Lord's anointed or to the king. Okay? All right. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3, the plot of the nations. Just quickly, let me read those few verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the, uh, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, there's a lot of really strong language here, a lot of strong language. There's several things you can see, plot and rage, set themselves against the Lord, Right? And seek to burst the bonds apart. This is, this is powerful language. This is aggressive language. The first thing that I want you to notice is what this passage tells us is that we can completely do away with the myth of neutrality in our, in our culture. Our world likes to put forth a, a myth that, that we can separate things out and that we can be uh, uh, completely secular. We can be completely uh, removed from, from religious motivations. And the reality is, is that we absolutely cannot. No one can that there is no neutrality in this world, that there, that there, are, there is raging right between. As we said before, there are two types of people. There are those who acknowledge the Lord's kingship, and there are those who are raging against it and who are seeking to assert another kingship and another authority. And so this is exactly what, what the psalmist is laying out here. This is what God is telling us in his, in his word, that the nations rage and the people's plot. Now, what you can parallel this to is... In Psalm 1, look over at where it says, in Psalm 1, 2, 
on his law, he meditates day and night. There's your contrast. You're either plotting, right? You're either plotting and raging against the Lord. It's very similar, right, to plot. What are you doing? You're scheming. You're thinking. And so you're either thinking about that or you're meditating on God's word, right? And you're you're coming under his kingship. And so there's your parallel of the plot against the Lord and, and setting ourselves against the Lord or coming under the Lord's authority and seeking to abide in him through Christ and by his word. And so what we see next is there in chapter 2, verse 3 is, let's say, if we're plotting against the Lord, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from among us. Now, now what is that? As you guys looked at Psalm 51, you noticed that one of the things, one of the ways that sin is described in the Bible is transgression. And this is really what this is getting at here. Burst their bonds apart. Uh, is seeking that any sort of parameter, any sort of guidance that the Lord has given, that when we're raging against him and we're plotting against him, we're seeking to, to say no to that authority and seeking to say no to that boundary and seeking to transgress that boundary. This is exactly what, what Adam and Eve did in the garden. As they said, you know what? We can do this our own way. We don't need you, Lord. We don't need you. We'll, we'll, we'll be our own authority. We'll set our own authority. We'll be our own gods. And they bought the lie from Satan. This is exactly what Pharaoh does in Exodus. Nothing encapsulates this better than Exodus 5.2 when Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his, his voice and let Israel go? It's like, who is that? I don't, I don't care what the Lord, who is that? I'm not going to obey him and let, let Israel go. But brothers and sisters, friends, it doesn't stop there. This is exactly what our culture is doing today when it seeks to redefine marriage or gender contrary to God's clear design in Genesis 1 through 2. Yet, this is exactly what you and I do when we choose greed over generosity, when we choose self over service, and on and on and on we can go. When we seek to assert ourselves, glorify ourselves, build ourselves up through gossip, tear down another to make me look good, and on and on and on we can go. See, we all take part in this rage. We all plot and scheme and seek to to make ourselves great, contrary to what God has for us. And the reality is, is that any time that we transgress... The result is always chaos. So go back to Genesis 1 through 2. Notice how the Lord creates there. And anytime there's there's a transgression, the result is destruction and chaos. So let's just think about how the Lord creates the earth and, 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 and think about the water and the boundary lines of the shore. You think about the riverbanks. Anytime we, we've seen this, even in our in our news over the last months of summer of regional flooding, right? If that water crosses those riverbanks, if that water goes beyond the shoreline, the result is chaos and destruction. Well, it's no different for us and our sin. Any time that, that we seek to, to go beyond what God has called for us, the result is going to be chaos. The result is going to be destruction. 
And so much of that is just the result of us going against God's good order and his creational design. And it results in this chaos. It results in this, in this destruction. It, it results in this craziness in our own lives. Yet that's not all. Because as the psalm continues, it's not just natural consequences that come about. The psalm makes clear that God is actually going to judge that transgression as well. And this is exactly what the, the strong language of the psalm that can be somewhat difficult to hear is getting at. And so let's look at verses 4 through 6 together. So if we see in, in verse 1 the, 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 the issue at hand, right? The issue at hand that is parallels to what's laid out in chapter 1, we see that we are plotting and raging and setting ourselves against the Lord. And verses 4 through 6 show the Lord's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath. And he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If we were just going to summarize this, of what's happening, what's the Lord's response? The, the, the summary of the Lord's response is that the rage of world powers, the rage of you and I shaking our puny fist in God's face saying we'll be our own gods, that the reality is, is that all of that is no contest for the Lord whatsoever. I'm a dad of four, as Kevin said a moment ago, and three of my four are boys. And my parenting philosophy of, as a dad is dominate them as long as I can. That's just my philosophy. Because the way I look at it is, for the majority of their life, they will be able to dominate me. Right? My dad is 73, and I could beat him at any sport. I just can. And he's still pretty active for a 73-year-old man. Uh, and I've been able to do that for a long time. So my oldest son is 14. And we travel, he traveled with me back in the spring to uh, a series of lectures that I wanted to go to. And I asked him if he wanted to go, and he said yes. And I think the only reason is because he got to miss school. And so he went with me. And so while we're there on campus, I said, they've got a gym. That was part of what I tried to draw him in with. And I said, we'll get up that morning, and we'll go play basketball and things like that. And so he was talking all kinds of trash the whole time as we went to go and play basketball. And I said, all right, son, let's see how this works. And he's I'm going to destroy you, Dad, and I'm going to... And uh, we played basketball, and we played just a 10-point game. And I beat him 10 to 5. 10 to 5. He was so demoralized. I thought I was going to die of a heart attack. <laughs> I am not, I'm not kidding. I was like, I really don't want to go to the hospital out of state. But I, I beat him, and that's all that mattered. And then he's like, well, let's, let's go play ping pong. I was like, all right, fine, let's go play ping pong. What I, he didn't know, what he'd forgotten is that I worked in a gym in college, and I played ping pong all the time. So we went, played ping pong three rounds. I beat him every time. And I was like, you want to play anything else? He's like, no, nah, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. And so, but that's my parenting philosophy. We're, he, here's the deal. We're just a few months, years, he's going to pass me in height, he's going to start, he's going to get stronger, and he's just going to destroy me for the rest of my life, right? But what we see here in the passage, the thing about Sam, my youngest, if he wanted to wrestle, sure, I'd laugh at that. It's like, let's wrestle, right? Uh, but, but the reality is here is, is, is that and even much more sobering, right? That the Lord is not, the Lord is not threatened by this. The Lord is not threatened by our rage. The Lord is not threatened by that. The Lord is not intimidated by that. The, the Lord laughs at it. 
And he holds it in derision. Why? Because, because it is injustice that we're seeking to assert ourselves. And, and, and it's treasonous of what we're trying to do. And so how will he respond? Well, he'll respond in wrath. This is what I'm talking about. It's not just going to be the chaos of natural consequences, but there's also going to be a judgment against it. And, and we want this, right? When we see injustice in the world, the, the, the reality that we're creating in the image of God, we long for justice when we see injustice. We, we want things to be set right, at least when it doesn't involve us. We like mercy for us and justice for everyone else, but, but we want things to be set right. We, we want things to be, wrongs to be righted, and, and so God is going to set things right, and, and, and in doing that, he will have to bring justice. And so it says he will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, and, and then notice his response. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You and the nations are seeking to make yourselves kings. But I've established the king on the throne. I've established the rightful ruler who will set all things right. And we love that storyline, do we not? It's, it's all throughout. In the Aeneid, Aeneas returning to set things right of his kingdom and the chaos. We love it in modern literature as well, the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king to set things right, and on and on and on we can go. We, we love that storyline. It's written in our heart. And so here we see that, that God is saying, I've established my king. I've set my king. That is my response. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There's none besides me. There is no God. The Lord is supreme. There is none who is before him. There is none who will be after him. And there are none above him. And his answer is, I've set my king on my holy hill. The verses that follow tell us what it means that his king is on the throne. What does it mean? What does that look like? That, that he's established his king and that he's, that he's on his holy hill and that he's on his throne. What does that look like? Verses 7 through 9 tell us that and they explain to us the rule of the Lord's anointed. So let's look there. It says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are a son. Today I have begotten you. So let's think first, who is that? Who is this king? Who is the one that he's established? Well, the Lord said to David, this is what parallels of what we just read in verse 7. Over in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. The Lord spoke to David, remember, when he wanted to go and build a house for the Lord. And the Lord said, I'm going to build a house for you, David, first. This is what he says, I'll raise your offspring up after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name. Most immediately that would have been Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Notice the parallel language there of what we see in Psalm 2. He says, I will tell the decree, and the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, that this, this king will be a son, and it will be a son from the house of David. Well, Jesus quotes in Matthew 22, Psalm 110.1, and he made clear that he is David's greater son. 
as he quotes from Psalm 110 and, he's, and, and, and engaging with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the temple, he makes clear that, that he is the son who would come after David, yet he is the greater son, the one of whom David referred to as Lord. And even later on in Scripture, in, in Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus says this, I am the root, that means the source, and you could say the shoot or the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Think about that. Jesus is, is showing who he is. He's showing his, his, his unique sonship. He's showing that he is the what, second person of the Trinity. That he is God in flesh who has come as the incarnated uh, son of God who is of the line of David. So he's a descendant, but he's also the root. He is the source of David himself. So who is this that is on the throne? Ultimately, this is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. There's none other who can fulfill this than Christ. And so this passage is ultimately about Jesus, and it's about the rule that Christ will have over all nations. And so Christ is the one who has come to establish what was lost in Adam. Adam came and was given this authority, and what did Adam do? Adam Rejected that authority, right? He, he, ejected, he rejected the plan that God had for him where he's supposed to be God's image bearer and he's supposed to be the vice regent for the Lord of creation and exercise good authority. Instead, he sought to assert his own authority and become his own God. And he gave up that dominion through his sin. And we see this in what results. What results from Adam and his rejection of this dominion. Remember He's supposed to have authority over all the earth, and the very thing that was going to have authority over, that he was supposed to have authority over, will have authority over him. Why? Because he will die. Instead of having authority over the dust of the earth, the dust of the earth will have authority over him as he goes back to the ground. And so we see that Adam forfeits this authority. He loses this authority, but Christ has come to regain what Adam lost. And we see Christ's good authority through his life and through his ministry. The miracles that he performs in his ministry, the teaching that he proclaims, he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. This is good news. Repent and believe. And so all throughout Jesus' his earthly ministry, what we're seeing is this reverse of the curse that comes about through Adam's fall and our joining in of that fall, right? And so the curse is reversed because Jesus proclaims, right, the blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing. He's forgiving sins. He's feeding the hungry. And, and ultimately, he'll even reverse death itself, right, through Jairus' daughter and through Lazarus. And so, so we're seeing the complete reversal of this curse as things are set right, as Christ is showing and displaying and proclaiming his kingdom and his kingship. Yet... To do this, he will have to bring judgment. And John picks up on this exact language in Revelation 19, 15 through 16. He says, from his mouth will come a sharp two-edged sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. You notice that? What do we see? We see it here in Psalm 2 as well. Right? He will break them as with a rod of iron is what it says in Psalm 2. John referencing the same thing, saying, He will come and he will tread the winepress of fury, the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh will be written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So 
Christ is going to reverse the curse. Christ is going to set things right. And he's going to bring a good rule and reign. But in order to do that, he will have to judge injustice. He will have to judge unrighteousness. He will have to set all things right. And, and notice what we see from his kingship and what we see is that, that in verse 8, all nations will be his heritage. And so his kingdom will expand to the ends of the earth, right? Everything will come under his good rule and reign. And, so, and, then, and then judgment will go to the ends of the earth. And is it a contest at all? Remember earlier, the Lord laughs because it's no contest. Look at verse 9. You shall break them as with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I don't like to even take my kids in a shop that sells fine china or breakable things, right? I'm certainly not going to take them in there and hand them all baseball bats, right? Because the, the results would be catastrophe, right? And this is an exact picture here. It's no contest, rod of iron, potter's vessel. There's, there's no, there's no toss-up there of what wins, and the Lord will bring his full judgment and establish his rule and reign. Now, the bad news is that, like I said at the beginning, we've all plotted and we've all raged and we've all set ourselves against the Lord. All of us. The bad news is that we're guilty before a holy God. And he will bring justice. The good news is, as Revelation makes so clear, the lion is also the lamb who is slain. The lion who came, Christ, to set all things right, to rule and to reign, is also the lamb who is slain for his creation. See, the king came first to serve and to die for his enemies, Mark 10, 45. Christ said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life. This is an amazing thing. That we get this picture of this, of this great and mighty king who will set all things right. And we're like, yes. And then we realize, oh, wait, we're his enemy as well. But think about this for a moment. Where do you see someone exercise authority like this? But yet that king says, I, I will I will." die for my people. I will lay down my life for my people. Think about all the times that you've lamented in politics, <clears throat> in the workplace, in the community. Someone gets some authority, they get some power, and they abuse it. And they forget what that authority and that power has been given to them for. It's been given to them to serve others. But instead, they start using it to serve themselves and prop themselves up. And we all have bemoaned this, rightfully so. And we've all lamented it. And some of us have fallen prey to it ourselves. Yet in Christ, we see something that's completely otherworldly in that he has supreme authority. And there is no contest to his authority. Yet he will come and lay down his life for his people. Because the only way that we can find him and adore him and see him in his beauty is if we first receive grace and mercy from him. Because otherwise we'll only meet him in his wrath and in his judgment. Because we're part of the problem. 
The bad news is we stand guilty. The good news is that the lion is also the lamb who is slain, the king who came to serve. And he bore the sins of all who would repent, turn from being their own kings and seeking to assert their own ruler, rule and authority, who would turn from that, throw themselves on, the, on, his, on his feet of mercy and grace. And he bore their sin so that the, he would be both just and judging sin and the justifier of all those who would have faith in Christ. Romans 3, 26. See, the first call for all of us this morning is to repent and believe the good news if we haven't done that. This is exactly the way the psalm ends. Psalm 10, I mean, verses 10 through 12, it records what our response should be to this supreme king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, that there is none before, none after, there is none over him who came to serve and to eternally reign. Look at what the very last verse says. Verse 12, very last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The late Derek Kidner has an excellent line on Psalm 2 in his commentary. He says, there is no refuge apart from him, only refuge in him. What he, said, what he means is you will not escape his wrath. You will not escape his righteous rule and judgment apart from being found in him. There's no refuge from him. <clears throat> there is only refuge in him. Friend, can I just ask you this? Who else is there better to serve? Who else is there better to, to fear? Who, who else is there better to receive refuge from? We're all seeking to do it in different ways, to justify ourselves, to, to cover ourselves. Oh, maybe if I make enough money, I can have savings and I'll be secure for the future. If I can get enough status, then I'll be recognized and I'll, and I'll feel... Uh, I'll feel validated and, and on and on and on all the different ways that we that we seek to uh, to establish ourselves to secure our future and to uh, to feel safe yet there's only one way it's through Christ Jesus see a king that would come and lay down his life for us that's a king that is worthy of our trust and he's worthy of our worship he's worthy of us living for So this morning, there's a couple of things I think we can walk away with. A couple of areas where we can probe around in our own hearts. First, have you ever looked to Christ in faith and repentance? Second, Christians, how should we respond to this? One question is, do you spend much time meditating on his word? Colossians, you could go look at Colossians 3 later, but it says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. And I think what Paul's talking about there is seek Christ's kingship. Seek the things above that where Christ is, where is he seated? He's on the throne, he's the king, and so, so we're to seek his kingship above all. And he says two things, he gives you two instructions there, seek, and then he says set. Seek, seek that. How do you know? 
his kingship, his rule and reign? How do you know what Christ has for you through his word? And then what are we to do? Set. I have a really, really bad habit when I get in a car. Do you guys use GPS? We all do, right? And so what do we do? We're typing in on the GPS. You're seeking. What's that address? Where are we trying to go eat? Where are we trying to go eat? All right. And then you, and then you set it. You put it in, right? You seek it. Oh, there it is. Set. You put it in. Do you know what I do? I mute Siri. So I don't like anybody telling me how to drive and where to turn and all that. So what happens? I'm driving down the road. And then I'm talking to whoever I'm with, and then I look down, and it's been saying for like five minutes, you turn, you turn, you turn, you turn, because I've gone way off track, right? I'm like, oh, man. Friends, isn't that not the Christian life? Seek. What does he have for us? Set. And what's that? What's the reminder for us? The Holy Spirit. And how often do we find ourselves, we've gone into the day, and it's like, you turn, you turn, you turn, turn around, turn around, rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. Right? This is Joshua. Don't part from it to the left or to the right. This is why we gather every week. For some of us this morning, gathering and worshiping and hearing fellowship from one another in prayer and reading the word is like, hey, you've gone to the left, you've gone to the right. Come on, redirect, redirect, get back on the path. Hear from God's word. Several things that we should do in response. One, we should just worship. We should worship the king. Psalm, uh, look at verse 10, kiss the king. I mean, this is, this is pay homage to him, worship him, behold him, delight in him. This is the king who's come and laid down his life for us. Next, we should pray and proclaim the kingdom. This is Jesus' um, command to us. This is his instruction to us of how to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should pray for this. Pray for his kingship to be realized more and more as his providence and creation, the kingdom, his grace and redemption. We should pray that the kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that it would be done through us, that it would be done throughout creation. We should pray for that and we should proclaim that. Matthew 28, 18. Notice this. This is that authority theme. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's Jesus. He already has all authority. What he's referring to is, according to his humanity, he's come, as we said a moment ago, as the second Adam who threw down that authority. He's reestablished that authority. All of it is mine. And then what does he say? Go. <clears throat> How did you say it a minute ago? Make, mature, multiply. That's what he's saying right here. Go. Make disciples. Proclaim the gospel in all nations, baptizing them. I'm teaching them to command all that I have. I'm teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Make mature, multiply, go. Proclaim the kingdom. I had a pastor tell me years ago, friends, this is so encouraging. He said, if he has all authority in heaven and earth, there is nowhere that you can go where he doesn't have authority. The nations may rage. They may be doing the exact same thing that they did to, to Peter and to John in Acts 4. Don't speak in that name. That's what they told them. Go and look at Acts 4 and notice what Peter and, and John and the others do. They pray, and what do they quote? Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2. And they recognize, we know that the world's raging against you, Lord. And what do they pray? Make them stop <clears throat> persecuting us. It blows my mind. That's not what they pray. That's what I would pray. Lord, this is getting hot in here. Please make that stop, right? 
<clears throat> what did they pray? Give us boldness. Give us boldness that we would just continue to proclaim. Proclaim the good news of Christ as King. Exhort others to take refuge in his life, death, and resurrection by responding in faith and repentance. Proclaim his, his authority. Next, we worship, we proclaim, we persevere. Persevere. This is exactly what's going on in Acts 4 as they're praying that they would, they would persevere and they would continue in boldness. Brothers and sisters, we should do the same. We have to be constantly reminded of who our king is and that he has all authority. Back in 2014, I was at a, at a conference and a, a guy by the name of Sam Alberry was there. And, and he said, you know, often we're told as, as Christians that we're on the wrong side of history. He said, but we need to be reminded over and over that if we are on the right side of Jesus, who is the beginning and the end of all history, we cannot be on the wrong side of history. If we're, on the, if we're on the right side of our king, who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and there's none before him or after him, then we can never be on the wrong side of history. Brothers and sisters, Christ told his church, Behold, I am coming soon. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The Lord reigns. He reigns. We should worship, we should pray, proclaim, we should persevere. Last, we should walk in a manner worthy of the king. This is exactly what we're called to do here. Look at verse 11 in, in chapter 2. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, he said, And if you call him Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves in fear throughout your time of exile. He says, hey, we're, we're, we're exiles in this world. And he says, if you call God Father, then you as believers should conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time. What does that mean? A reverence to the Lord. Knowing why? Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ that of the lamb who is without blemish or spot. What does he say? In light of who you are in Christ and that you have been saved and redeemed, you should live and conduct yourselves in fear. Paul says it over and over in his epistles. He says, walk, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. Use the same language, Ephesians, over and over. Live a life worthy of the calling. So this week... Christian, whose kingship are you going to live for? Yours or the Lord? Think about this just for a moment. Tomorrow morning, whatever the Lord has for you, if it's waking up at 4 a.m. and driving Matt to the airport, Kevin, right? If it's going to work, if it's, if it's getting up and, and spending some time with friends or neighbors, just ask yourself this. Who am I representing today? Me or the Lord? What does faithfulness to God and to Christ look like today in this situation, in this circumstance? Not what does faithfulness to you and to your agenda look like, because oftentimes faithfulness to me and to my agenda looks like grumbling and complaining. 
I can't believe these people won't get on board with what I want to do. I can't believe that, right? I can't believe this boss is hard to work. What does faithfulness to Jesus look like in your marriage, in your parenting, in your singleness? What does faithfulness to Jesus look like in your work tomorrow with your, with your uh, peers in work, with your boss in work? What does it look like when you're driving down the road? What does it look like when you're at the coffee shop? What does it look like? What, who are you representing? And what does it look like to live under his kingship? Remind yourself over and over, the Lord reigns, and I'm to live for him, to worship, to pray and proclaim the kingdom, and to live quorum Deo before the face of the Lord, for his glory and for the good of those around me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would confirm it in our hearts. Father, if there are those who have not looked to Christ in faith, that they would do so this morning. And for those who are yours, Lord, instruct us. Let us hear. Let us believe. Let us live this week not for ourselves, but for you and for your kingship and for your glory. We're thankful for it. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.